Welcome to the latest Industry Insights podcast. Industry Insights is a reservoir of articles, interviews and other content relating to business, entrepreneurialism, leadership, charity, career pathways and networking. We'll be exploring the many opportunities in building the global integrative medicine community and how you can get involved. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Nikki Schoendorfer, who commenced tertiary study in 1994 at the Australian College of Natural Medicine, Brisbane, majoring in nutrition and natural health. She later completed a diploma in traditional Chinese medicine, philosophy and herbalism, concurrently with a bachelor degree in complementary medicine, and then her master's degree in nutritional medicine in 2005. She then enrolled into a PhD doctorate at the University of Queensland School of Medicine and completed studies in nutritional biochemistry and clinical medicine. Her passion for teaching has spanned over 10 years, facilitating classes from the Endeavour Natural Medicine degrees and also in the University of Queensland Medical School program. Nikki has been practicing as a holistic health practitioner since the year 2000, assisting many people on their road to health and happiness. Welcome to FX Medicine, Nikki Schoendorfer. How are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you going? I'm good. Now, I'm, I've snipped out a heck of a lot of your career. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about this career because it's very interesting and I might say very rare that a nutritionist, naturopath type person, practitioner, goes into teaching at the medical school. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, what kind of actually got me into research in the first place is because, you know, during my initial studies, I kind of thought, you know, this stuff is so important and people are just missing the really basics about, you know, we need nutrition for our body to actually function properly. And I thought, you know, how, um, you know, can I sort of bring more of this information through? And so I thought, you know, get into research um, and, you know, work along that line. Um, and, you know, during my research, it was then, um, you know, the opportunity uh, came about when they were redesigning the medical school program and they put out expression of interest for people's opinions through the faculty. And so I structured, you know, and did some research and structured a nice, um, a nice cover paper uh, for, you know, backing up why nutrition is important and why it should be taught in medical um, education. And so then I was later invited to a networking workshop and, um, you know, I just happened to be seated next to um, the lady who was the director of the medical school program. Mm. Um, and we just got to chatting and she's like, I love it. I love it. It's amazing. It's perfect. And, you know, it just went on you know, from there and we ended up working because, you know, everything's about funding. Uh, we ended up um, working at, as a research project to be able to get some internal funding, looking at, um, you know, the provision of the increase of nutritional components and if that did actually change the perceptions around medical students' um, thoughts and views on nutrition um, in clinical practice. 
So you can read all of that if you look at my publications, some of my later publications of the medical education stuff. So if you're interested to know more about that, all of that. So we'll put that up on the FX Medicine website, but that's a very interesting point that you make right there. Did it change? And did it change practice? And I've got another one. If it's changing practice to add nutritional medicine, what has been the fallout, if you like, of these you know, call them integrative doctors when they come up against the stalwarts that refute any uh, benefit of nutritional intervention? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think a lot of the, um, you know, I guess the, you know, the drama, you could call it, around people's (laughs) opinions, I think we're going to see that fizzle out as time goes on because it seems to be more people who are, you know, without being ageist, if that's what you call it, (laughs) who seem to be more old older or trained a long time ago that are more stuck in their ways. And a really interesting thing that we found when we published the baseline results of the attitudes um, and perceived knowledge towards nutrition with the students going through is that majority of them um, did feel that it was really important. So I think, you know, with the changing times that, you know, people are more equipped to make better decisions for themselves. And, you know, you only need to eat better food to know that it's making a difference to your health. You don't need to wait for, you know, a barrage of research papers to say, oh, well, you know, eating nutrients, healthy food is going to be beneficial for you. You know, I think that's kind of overlooking people in a way for them, you know, are they up? Are we as humans or as people, just general public, are we able to know what makes us feel better or not? So I think it's kind of taking a bit away from our own power by saying that, you know, before we can make recommendations, particularly about basic things like, you know, eating vegetables, whether we need to have, you know, a barrage of studies. Um, and then, you know, it leads me on to what we're also going to talk about is you know, is the scientific method really the ideal way, the way it's structured at the moment, the ideal way to be able to uh, work out what's best um, on a population level as well? And that's a perfect segue into our topic, is the scientific method flawed? But what what do we mean by that? I mean, you know, we certainly need some sort of science to guide benefit versus no benefit. But I do understand that... You know, there aren't many studies out there, uh, you know, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomised trials on showing that the red apple is better than the green, for instance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess one of the biggest shortcomings is a lack of funding. And, you know, without the funding, the studies haven't actually been done. And I think some of the public perception, particularly the people that tend to be a bit biased, they quite often mistake a lack of evidence for a lack of efficacy. Mm. Whereas, you know, the uh, the research just simply hasn't been done rather than, you know, it doesn't work because there's no research. That's not what it's saying at all. Does the issue then become one of claims of benefit? Well, you know, that's the marketing machine then, you know, as well which, you know, in, I know as, you know, practitioner products, there's some regulations, but once you get onto, you know, the World Wide Web, it's, you know, every celebrity and their pets that (laughs) have health advice for people, really, isn't it? And so, you know, I can understand why there is a lot of um, confusion, but at the same time, you know, there's people that are adequately trained um, in areas of physiology and, you know, holistic health that, you know, it's worth people just, you know, spending 
the the time and the effort at least once just to get a bit of a summary of what's happening with themselves as an individual. Well, let's go through various types of evidence. Like I just mentioned one, the randomised controlled trial, the RCT. But there's so many other types and, you know, you'll get every now and again, you'll get somebody popping up saying, um, you know, epidemiology is a waste of time and you need to do an experiment. But then you can do an experiment and you can get the totally wrong answer. Yeah, so I guess with the epidemiology studies, um, being observational studies, we can't um, pro- they can't prove causation because when we're observing, particularly when we're observing things around health, health usually happens in a concert. So say, for example, there was research that showed that people who ate higher amounts of fruits and vegetables, which there is, have a much lower risk of a whole lot of different disease conditions. So is it in fact the higher fruit and vegetables or is it the fact that people who consume higher amounts of fruits and vegetables eat less garbage, eat less sugar? Um, You know, maybe they drink more water, maybe they're more likely to participate in physical activity. And so, you know, from that perspective, um, the observational or epidemiology research can be useful for us to develop hypotheses to be tested, but we can't say that, you know, where that's what it is. You can't like specify, you know, because of that, because, you know, it's not a controlled yeah. study. Do all studies have a set uh, list, if you like, of confounders that they reach for to say, okay, the possible confounders of this are A, B, C, D, and E, um, or can they very yeah. easily miss certain things like what you've just said? Like, you know, somebody who eats apples is more likely to in, be involved in physical activity. Um, or do yeah, they just go so for I mean, the obvious there is ones? A lot of, there is a lot of overlooked issues within um, research, particularly once, you know, people can be an expert, say, in the topic of, I'm just making this up, yeah. um, in the topic of cardiology, and they might have done, you know, a lot of drug research before. And then they'll decide, oh, there's a lot of hype about, you know, these omega-3 fatty acids. I'll just do a research study like I always have done and use omega-3 oils, use the fish oils or whatever, instead of the usual drug. Um, And then they'll just run the study exactly the same as they did before without considering, you know, things like was the person deficient in the first place? Uh. That makes a difference with the end result. I mean, the fashionable thing with the fish oil studies is they're using olive oil as a placebo. (laughs) And now olive oil is a monounsaturate, which we also know has has pharmacological properties that can change cell membranes. And so when you're comparing a treatment to another treatment, at the end, they conclude the difference between the two groups wasn't very much. Whereas if they actually looked at the benefit on its own that people were getting or, you know, some of the people were getting, that's actually clinically very relevant as well because, you know, perhaps the people who were deficient or I'm pretty sure this is what usually happens is the people who are deficient and omega-3 was the problem, essential fatty acid balance was the problem, are the ones that are going to benefit from taking the omega-3 oils. But because in the studies, they go and lump everyone, you know, everyone with dyslipidemia Mm -hmm. into one study that is the fat balance the problem or is the sugar the problem. And so if people have got blood sugar 
issues that are causing dyslipidemia, by giving them omega-3s, it may not help. And if omega-3s aren't a problem, omega-3s aren't going to be the solution. And, you know, we see that all the time with, you know, particularly nutrition-based research and other research where, you know, we're trying to support, um, where we're trying to support physiology Mm. rather than trying to, you know, I guess with drug therapy, drug therapy is designed to do a specific thing to change physiology, which it does very well. And so the scientific method can very easily say whether that drug does or doesn't do that. When we're looking from a, a natural medicine perspective, we're trying to support physiology and the way to support physiology is going to be based on what's the issue with the individual's physiology, not just the set of symptoms that might be dyslipidemia. It's a very interesting point you make there because I remember speaking with uh, Dr. Mark Houston about this, just harping on about cardiovascular issues and omega-3. And I have not looked at the baselines of these studies, but what he said was that the most famous trials, the GISI-P, the GISI-HF, for instance, never measured baseline. They only did the intervention. Mm. What I think is interesting, yeah. What I think is interesting, though, is that you've got the Gissy P Gissy HF in an Italian geographical uh, and cultural place where they eat more fish. You've also got the Jealous trial, the J E L I S trial, again done in Japan using just EPA in Japan where they eat more fish. Then you take that same dose of fish oil that they used and you transpose it to Melbourne or Sydney where they don't eat fish. Australia is not a fish-eating country by, by default. And then you're trying to ask that same dose of omega-3s to get the same effect in a non, um, if you like, with a, a far different baseline, a far different um, dietary intake. Um, so yeah, I'm wondering yeah, exactly. whether this, you know, a dose issue is is part of the problem here. We've seen oh, it with vitamin course, D as well. Yeah, that, of course. I mean, that, that's another one of the issues as well looking at, you know, people's baselines, people's environment, um, you know, their baseline physiology. So yeah. was it the actual essential fatty acid imbalance that was causing the dysfunction under study anyway? There's a there's a kettle to dive into. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, with, so is the scientific method flawed? Um, you know, we're, we're always getting mixed results. Yeah. And are we ever not going to get mixed results? I think we're not. I think we're always going to see mixed results because of the fact that we're trying to find a magic bullet. Mm-hmm. And there aren't magic bullets when you're trying to support physiology because not everybody got dyslipidemia for the same reason. So I, I think maybe we should qualify the is the scientific method flawed. It certainly may be flawed when you've got inexperienced researchers doing research on nutritional medicine where there are a vast different, uh, vastly different need for um, measuring different parameters? Oh, yeah. I mean, that that as well. But, you know, even in general, I think testing, say, you know, even when we, okay, we'll move back to natural medicine. Mm. We treat people holistically as well. We don't just go and give one particular thing, we don't go and say, okay, well, a low-salt diet for somebody with hypertension, like if salt's the problem, that's going to work really well if that's the only problem. But if that person's really stressed, a low-salt diet isn't going to work Mm. until they help sort out their stress, you know, as well. So, you know, using more of that whole practice um, research type of scenario, um, you know, at least that's getting a little bit closer from, you know, holistic 
you know, type of management. And, you know, even then we cross into the the placebo effect. Um, you know, the placebo effect is a perfect example of more than just physical treatment can affect people's health. So is this part of what we term critical thinking? Like, you know, some of us talk about the the Sherlock Holmes was famous for it, the deductive reasoning. Is there another way of critically analysing results? Ah, well, that's, you know, back to that. The the problem with the scientific method is they're trying to find one answer for one problem. And that's through deduction. So deduction by gathering everything and finding its common denominator. But is there a common denominator for everybody? I'd like, that's just not the way it is. And what's the alternative? Well, (laughs) I mean, you know, selecting maybe people for studies based on more than just a disease condition. You know, can we separate those into, you know, people who, say, if we take that hypertension example again, can we separate it into um, people also with anxiety? So hypertension with anxiety rather than hypertension with, you know, poor diets, you know, something like that. Because by dumping everyone with hypertension into a study and giving them a low-salt diet, you're going to find it works for some people, which we do find. You know, it works for some people but not for others. And then so, you know, the the research method then concludes that more research needs to be done. There's there's mixed results and so we can't make any assumptions, which is a major error because it has worked for those, you know, 50, 60% of people, which is what we see in the research that it actually has worked for those 50 and 60% of people, which I think is really important information that we're missing because they're waiting to find something that works for everybody and they're never going to. So, I mean, I guess when we look at people from a holistic perspective, we use that inductive reasoning, which is gathering a whole lot of different resources, I guess, about a person, you know, whether it's the physical assessment, the, you know, the lifestyle analysis, all of those other components that we use, and then looking at the person in a broader perspective of treating the person rather than treating the disease. So how would you differ, I guess, a well-designed study for nutritional medicine as opposed to a pharmacological agent where you really want that reductionist thing that, and let's face it, you want that reductionism so that you can show that you have um, reasonable uh, expectation on a return for monetary investment. That's that's the purpose of a pharmacological agent. Um, yeah, totally. And I mean, while they're while they're aiming at lowering the blood pressure, they can take a drug for that. And so, you know, the scientific method's perfect in that area because then they want to find out whether this drug they've designed to lower blood pressure lowers blood pressure. Quite simple. It either does or it doesn't. And hopefully, you know, the side effects aren't major. And then you know, it's, they work out whether they can release it onto the market or not. Mm. And so the scientific method is perfect from that type of perspective because, you know, the drug needs to do that. Um, but is just lowering that person's, person's blood pressure bringing them back to wellness? Because we're not addressing why that person has got high blood pressure. And so the person's never going to get well. They're just going to have lower blood pressure artificially based on what the chemical agent that they're ingesting does to their body. So can you name examples where randomised multicenter placebo-controlled crossover trials um, 
have I covered all aspects there? Um, <laughs> don't apply to natural medicine. Like, for instance, um, I remember Jeff Bland talking about maybe with nutritional medicine we should be looking at things like intervention studies. But I guess the issue there is, well, you know, 20 different practitioners could treat this a very similar disease in a multitude of different ways and end up all seemingly with a positive result. How then do you get consensus? Yeah, well, I mean, that's just back to, uh, are we looking at it in the wrong way? So where should we, how should we be designing studies, especially with nutrition and lifestyle, but I guess also with supplements? Should we be looking at not one, but a few supplements and how, let's say, a supplemental um, protocol, I will use the word protocol in this because it, it is something that you to, um, are hoping to research. Normally, I disdain that that word. Um, <laughs> but in this instance, you are t- hoping to create a protocol that will then uh, be backed up by the results that you'll gain. Yeah. I mean, again, it's about how do we do that and look at the individual. I'm, I'm not sure that we can because that's. I think the scientific method is is in error by trying to find one thing that suits everybody. And I don't. I don't. That's what I don't think. I don't think it's possible. I mean, as clinicians that have been working for a long time, we know that we get results. Patients know that we get results uh, with how we treat the person as an individual. But I don't treat disease when I see people. I treat the person. I see exactly what's going on with that person and, you know, address that accordingly rather than, okay, well, that person's got this disease and that disease and that disease. How, How will I tackle that? Yeah, so this is looking at the outcome. Yeah, 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 yeah. So outcomes-based research, but you're right. And then you get the people who are in the court of the, you know, scientific method saying, well, they all haven't been given the same treatment, so how can we? And it's like, well, that's just where this problem is, is that you're not going to find the same treatment that works for everybody. Can you give us some examples of where an outcome study, if you like, what, you know, what we're talking about, the, the correct way of doing research with nutrition, has shown benefit, has shown that it's you know, made a, a positive impact on patients' lives so that, I guess the, the big thing is, so that sceptics can go, oh, maybe I should look further than my reductionist um, you know, deductive reasoning. Yeah, I'm really not sure. I think some people just get stuck in their ways and then refuse to um, acknowledge new, mm. new into their perspectives. You know, I mean, that's a beautiful thing about science and why I got into it in the first place. Things are always changing, and you know, but unfortunately, you get people that are stuck in the old ways and they don't want to be open to, you know, new developments and you know, new realizations about things. So what's been your experience when you're teaching doctors and they sort of come up against this, I have never run into this way of thinking. What's been the flip in their mind? How have they reacted? Yeah, well, I guess the most, probably the most rewarding thing about, you know, lecturing in the first year um, with the medical students is that, you know, they are open to those sorts of ideas. And I think of a lot of them being of a younger generation as well, are very much open to you know, knowing that, you know, you need to eat well to feel well. Yeah. And so, you know, just really breaking it down to this is how the body functions. This is why we need fiber. This is why, you know, we need essential fatty acids, how that is how the body can produce its own anti-inflammatories, which is then, you know, protective against chronic disease. 
And, you know, it's just the way you, know, you could see you know, some of them walking, looking a little bit skeptical at me yeah. to start off with. Yeah. But then, you know, once you break it down like that, they're just like, wow, you know, it's really not that complicated once you can kind of break it down. Well, that's actually why we need food. And then have you ever had any students that have gone out into the big bad world contact you and say, you know what, thanks for that. It really made a difference in my patients' <laughs> lives. Well, I haven't had any that have come out doing that. Ah, okay. I've only been teaching in a medical program maybe the last, I think, about five years ago. Right. The last five years. So, But I have had emails to students after the sessions and, um, and yeah, and, you know, we haven't tracked further um, than that with the research uh, in that particular area. But, you know, there is actually a big – we did then move on to do a national collaborative project with other medical schools around the country, and we've developed – a bunch of web-based resources so other medical schools can use those. We ended up with a national um, teaching and learning grant for sharing. It wasn't from the health department. <laughs> um, <laughs> from the <laughs> Teaching and Learning Council for sharing resources amongst universities. Yeah. So we were able to go that to um, do that in the last few years. And then even this year, Harvard um, has started a international movement um, for nutrition in medical education. So there's really, we're really getting momentum in that field now, which is really good to see. You know, this is, this is something that really interests me is that like, if you speak to an integrative GP, they'll tell you, and without exception, they'll tell you that they did NAFOL training on nutrition you know, yeah, like one yeah. lecture or something like that in their medical training. Yeah. Well, there's actually a research, we, we published a research paper with Deakin and they actually, we actually looked at um, the need. So we actually looked at the amount of nutrition education in Australian medical schools um, and looked at the positive information. We've developed a, a um, competency framework yeah. on, you know, with, in consultation with a lot of other medical medical um, education specialists and other leaders in those fields. Um, and so there is a competency framework that exists now. And, you know, again, but if the issue is it's the issue is with funding, you know, the schools have to then come to the party and get somebody on board who can help, you know, work these types of things, um, you know, as well. When you're lecturing, I, I have to ask, do you tend to stick to the more medical type frameworks of dietary and lifestyle intervention? Like, for instance, um, uh, you know, ketogenic diet in epilepsy is a, is a classic one. Um, and I've run up against this from a colleague's point of view where a group of neurologists learnt about this and there was this yeah. spread of of acceptance, if you like, and and not refuting, yeah. but but unfortunately, there was a very small percentage that said, "This is really interesting. I'm going to change my practice." Most of them said, "Nah, too hard. Very interesting, but too hard." So it was, yeah, it, and and yeah. this to me is really sad because it's not them that's yeah. losing out; it's their epileptic patients. Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah, how yeah. do you find, like, where do you stick to, with regards to dietary interventions, and how do you find the uptake? Um, I guess we're in first year, we're talking just mainly biochemistry and physiology. Mm. Um, and, you know, just really basic. I do a nutrition masterclass uh, with the students where we look at, you know, 
um, Jane blogs or Bill blogs or whatever who's, um, you know, who's got the classic, which a lot of people do in this country, unfortunately, you know, the metabolic syndrome types of things with obesity and dyslipidemia. And, you know, it's just those really basic things of just nutrition, diet, you know, diet and lifestyle. And, you know, there is a lot of information about the protective benefits of, you know, having more fruit and vegetables, reflecting on the dietary guidelines, which are improving, yeah. <laughs> which is really Slowly, good. You know, ever well, so it's slowly. Base, it's just that basic stuff to, you know, help them demystify all that rubbish that they read on the internet as well. It's like, well, these are the facts and this is the basic scenario that, you know, 95% of Australians aren't doing. Mm. And I think, I think this is where the dietary guidelines of the past have really missed the fact. It's like you can, we, we've all known about healthy lifestyle. The fact of the matter is though, that marketing is so prevalent by companies, uh, that are marketing foods, Miracle which have, product. yeah, well, well I, I was going to say absolute, you know, poor dietary choices, yeah, but they've got yeah. the most of the money. And so people are marketed yeah. to by these companies rather than the health food. So the fact of the matter is the healthy guidelines yeah. haven't worked. Yeah. Yeah. And it's exactly, it's exactly that too, that, you know, people just do believe what they're told and they're told in such you know, these marketing people, they, you know, no offense to any marketers out there, but, you know, they spend years work getting trained at university on how to manipulate people. Yes. I'd say offense to marketers out there that are doing this pointedly. Well, but, you know, but this is the reality and people just want a quick fix. Yeah. They, they don't want to take responsibility. They want that miracle pill because they're all low energy because they've never eaten enough vegetables, you know, quite, quite simply, and they want that quick fix. This is definitely uh, the downfall of our society is the word convenience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, at the same time, I think we're seeing a, a, a big shift and there's, you know, I think there's even a renaissance when we're looking at people who are just know they feel better when they eat better and I think you're seeing it more and more out there. You know, the response I get from the from the medical students, it, it's great. You know, they're all thanking me at the end as well. Oh, thanks, you know, for, for you know, sharing all that with us and, you know, they're appreciative and they, they recognise the need as well. And you've kindly shared some of your research, which we'll put up on the FX Medicine website for our, our listeners to engage in. But I've got to ask you, where to now? Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? I just, yeah, I just, I really enjoy lecturing. So I guess that's sharing my knowledge with students. I do teach at the Naturopathic College still in Brisbane. Um, I teach in the medical school as well, back in private practice um, as well now. I've sort of untangled myself from the trying to get funding all the time that's just not available. So I thought, you know, how can I use my skills better? Um, and so that's kind of – I'm directed more now towards just education, towards educating and then educating clients as well. One last question for you, Nikki, and that is yeah. for the budding natural health practitioner wanting to um, start a career in research um, yeah. with, you know, natural medicines, natural protocols, natural framework of medicine, if you like, yeah. what would you suggest? Um, get a good research group. I think that's one of the things, because I did start so early, there wasn't much around at the time in the university systems. That was probably the toughest thing I found was I was just doing everything alone. 
But how do you, how like do you that. first yeah. find that? How you know what sort of things did you do to actually engage the, the you know the find, first engagement? Well, I just made appointments with people. I just read research of who was around and then made appointments and gotcha. just met with them. And yeah, yeah. So, but I would suggest to people to have an area of interest, have a look who's doing what in that area, and just get in contact with them. You know, everyone's always after students to you know help with their research or you know, that type of thing. So, you know, it's, it's definitely there's stuff out there that can be done to contribute to the literature as well. So I think that'd be wonderful. Brilliant advice. Dr Nikki Schoendorfer, thank you so much for taking us through another way of thinking about how we read research and think about research results, but I guess also engage with our patients, thinking from, you know, the, the, the bottom up rather than um, taking things apart from the top down. Thanks so much for joining us on FX Medicine. No worries. It's been my pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can find more Industry Insights podcasts and resources under the Community tab on the FX Medicine website.